Second Samuel chapter 23 this evening. Good reminder is a Bible study does not have to be profound to be edifying. Hopefully I get both of them, but we don't know. David and his mighty men. Again, these last four chapters in Second Samuel are prologue to the rest of Samuel, first and second. Well, mainly David sums up his life. Information that is helpful to understanding uh, what uh, went on during his reign that was left out of the other material, not in chronological order, these last four chapters. In fact, most of it goes back to the beginning. Some of it that we'll get to this evening took place before he reigned over the northern and southern kingdom at the same time. This is David's last published psalm. It's a very short psalm. Not the shortest, but it is short. And we get to find out what was on David's mind uh, towards the end of his life. What was standing out. And that is uh, recorded for us here. Uh, We look at verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high the anointed of God, the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. He really loved that, sweet psalmist of Israel. Well, who would not? Um, uh, you know, to, to just have such a uh, compliment attached uh, to your, your service, your name. Well, we know these aren't the last words of David because we'll hear him speak in the first two chapters of Kings. But these are the last published words uh, in psalm form that we have. And uh, it says, David, says David, the son of Jesse. Saul mocked David and his father because Saul knew uh, God had chosen David. David had the rights to the throne and Saul hated that. Saul seems to have wanted to insult the family, looking back at 1 Samuel chapter 20. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? And again, in 1 Samuel 20, verse 30 this time, then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? And so there was foul mouth. Saul at work, knowing the anointing was on him, but he did not even want to use David's name. He hated him so much. And Saul, of course, being petty and self-absorbed, that that the man that he was. But David, he rejoices in being from Judah. It distinguished him as the one whom the monarchy belonged to, according to God. Rightfully so. This was prophesied by Jacob. Genesis chapter 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, that's not completely fulfilled. There still remains Messiah to completely fulfill that, but parts of it were and are. 
the Judaic dynasty, the tribe of Judah, would, would produce the kings that, that God, that it was that tribe that uh, God chose. That part there in Genesis 49.10, until Shiloh comes, it's a cryptogram for Messiah, Shiloh, likely meaning peace, and he is the Prince of Peace. And so woven into this Judaic dynasty of kings is also the Messiah. And David loved this, and he, he's writing about it. He's bringing it forward, and it continues here in verse 1. Says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob. He's embraced his anointing. He's not doubtful about it. He knows where it comes from. Remember, he's writing this psalm, and he has lived a life trying to serve Yahweh as best he can. Not only were there failures, but there was a lot of pain in his life and suffering, and yet, this is what was on his mind towards the end. That God was still with him. God was always with him. Says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob. Well, with Jacob, the nation of Israel was born. With David, the Judaic dynasty began, as prophesied in Genesis, Genesis not genocide, Genesis 49.10. And continuing on, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Of the 150 psalms that we have, David uh, may have written more than half of them. 73 of them are explicitly attributed to him. The Psalm of David, a Mictum of David, a Meditation of David. Uh, it's quite remarkable. No person in Scripture is more closely associated with music in worship of Yahweh or of the Lord God than David. These are remarkable accomplishments. Uh, Again, to dismiss David, if, if I were making a list of the top five heroes of the scripture among men, uh, David would be in the top five. He'd be in the top two. You know, Paul is really tough to beat Paul. Uh, it's just, uh, we'll come back to Paul briefly later. But uh, this, <clears throat> just a magnificent character. What would happen if David lived in the New Testament? <laughs> Uh, that would be something. He probably would have killed a lot of people. Anyway, <laughs> verse 2, The Spirit of Yahweh spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. God spoke to me, says David. Uh, it wasn't remarkable to him. The God that could create everything from nothing, if He could do that, He could speak to me. Uh, this is not a problem. This is not a problem for the Bible believer. Again, if you have a problem with Genesis 1-1, you have the problem with the rest of the Bible. In the beginning, God. If you have a problem with that, then uh, you, you're, going to, to miss, you're going to miss it. Now, we Christians, uh, many of the world, you know, they're bitter at God because life didn't turn out the way they wanted. And we face a lot of that ourselves. We're not shielded from that. And yet, as upset as we may be from time to time with how God is allowing or disallowing things in our life, we still worship Him. We still love Him. We still know what's going to happen in the end. We know that the day will come when we'll be in heaven. God the Holy Spirit, He inspires, He reveals, He directs, He addresses. He encourages at His own pace. We cannot dictate to God, Lord, I need encouragement, and snap our finger and expect Him to be there. Sometimes he does, right away. 
Other times he says, no, you need to go through this. I'm, I'm working, I'm doing things, and you have to take it by faith. Hebrews 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers through the prophets has in these last days spoken to us through his son. Zechariah, he writes about the Holy Spirit speaking to God's people, or at least the people that were called to be God's people, but they were in rebellion, this group, this batch that he was addressing. And of course, the Bible is timeless, never needs to be updated Uh, culturally corrected. Zechariah 7, verse 12, he says, Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which Yahweh of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from Yahweh of hosts. And so there he is saying that God sent by his, through his spirit to the prophets God speaks to his people. David says, the spirit of Yahweh spoke to me. Not the great spirit, the spirit of God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Peter, the God of Paul. And Jesus Christ in the flesh. The, third, the second person of the Trinity. You know, it's the Holy Spirit being, of course, as we know it, for our understanding, the third person of the Trinity. To God, is just God. But uh, we have to break it down so that we can keep up. And his word was on my tongue. So the Spirit of God spoke, and the word was on his tongue. God spoke to me, says David. God spoke through me, says David. And you've got to love that. Well, if he could do it to David, the guy that killed Uriah, he can do it to me, because I didn't kill Uriah. And so uh, it's, it's something that is important to us. To have this blessed assurance going through this muddy life that God can speak to his people and God speaks through his people. It's more through the word for us now. This is the age we live in. God could give us a direct word, but it never disagrees with scripture. If it does, it's not from God. Acts chapter 1, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And that's, of course, Peter jumping the gun and wanting to replace Judas. Uh, He was overruled by God giving Paul to the church, but God in his grace wasn't going to get rid of Matthias. I mean, you, you know, they put God in a spot, if you could say, if you look at it that way. Matthias was a good man, but he was not God appointed. He was apostle appointed. (laughs) Uh, We'll be coming to that when we get to Acts. Uh, And again, if we are raptured before then, we will continue in Acts when we get to heaven. I'll tell you where later. Uh, Anyway, Jesus speaking about David. How then does David in the spirit call him Lord? And this is, of course, when they were challenging the the authority of Christ. But the point I want to draw from that portion in Matthew 22 is, Jesus himself is saying that the Holy Spirit spoke to David, just as David is saying it right here. Then there's Psalm 139, 4. Well, there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Yahweh, you know it all together. Well, the Spirit of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God knows what we're up to all the time. And we who know and love the Lord because of his grace and mercy are not terrorized by that. 
but here, the Psalms, they are God's word. And that's what David is saying. He is saying that God spoke to me, therefore the things I wrote in these Psalms are now scripture. What makes them scripture? Well, God speaks. God has spoken to people, and it did not make it into the scripture. When it is preserved in writing, it becomes scripture. And uh, that's what David is saying. Verse 3, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in fear of God. So he's now opening up the psalm, inviting or expanding it, and uh, runs through verse 7. This again is blessed assurance. The God of Israel, the rock of Israel spoke to me. Now, for David to say that, he's pointing back to Deuteronomy, of course. But what does it mean when Paul says that rock is Jesus Christ? It was Yahweh in the Old Testament. Well, it's obvious. Jesus is Yahweh. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So Messiah is uh, divine. And most of the Jews understood it that way long before Christ came along. Um, The Pharisees and Sadducees, of course, they didn't want it to be that way because they didn't like Jesus because Jesus did not uh, acknowledge their profound positions. And he didn't comment on how nice their robes were, and that really got to them. He who rules over men must be just ruling in fear of God. Well, two principles of leadership, that if if either one of these don't work, you don't have leadership. To be fair and to, uh, in fear of God, for the Christian, of course. I mean, the world can produce leaders that are fair. They have an understanding of, of what works as a leader. But the fear of the Lord, of course, is the big one. And uh, you don't have fear of the Lord if you're not just, if you're not fair. Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Face. I had a family member many years ago who had uh, two children, and the oldest child got blamed for everything the younger child did. And it was just so undermining. It did damage over the years. It, it did damage. And you, it just to this day, to this day, I'd like to smack the parent. Uh, just you know, what are you doing? You're ruining the child. And I, I, I think they did. Uh, anyway, the, the basic principle is that justice wasn't how they. The justice was not a part of their parenting preference. Uh, injustice it was, and it just it was just terrible. And uh, Anyway, James, we're talking about leadership now. Uh, He who rules over men must be just, ruling in fear of God. James writes, my brethren, uh, do not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. That's pretty comforting to me right now. Uh, In Hebrews 13, Paul drives it home three times, but I'll just, we'll just take one. He says, obey those who rule over you and be submissive. I'll stop there. Well, what's the alternative in a church? A free-for-all? People rebelling and fighting? Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. And there it is again, accountability to God. Let them do so with joy 
and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. I, it's a very igno- much ignored verse in some circles. Well, a defective sense of accountability will lead to defective leadership and uh, damage, damaging outcomes. Kings such as Saul, on the other hand, they, they suppose that the people existed for them. Their women will, whereas the king who rules in fear of the Lord, uh, he understands that he is just a shepherd of someone else's sheep, someone else's flock. And that's what a steward is. A steward watches over someone else's belongings. And the kings of Israel were to understand that. Some of them did. Most of them did not. Well, they might have understood it. They just didn't care for it. (sighs) Speaking of understanding, I had this thing stuck in my head. I read something in my notes. It's a little off topic, but maybe to help you stay awake. It just... I read it the other day. I said, I don't remember where I got it, but I read it. And, and then I turned it into this little chant. And it goes like this. The, ma- the mouse doesn't know why the cheese is free. The mouse doesn't know why the cheese is free. <laughs> and it goes good with a little, you know, dance-like, but I'm not going to go that far right now. And I hope it gets stuck in your head. Again, the mouse doesn't know why the cheese is free. So, uh, anyhow. <laughs> uh, now that's leadership, if I can get you to sing that later on today. <laughs> Verse 4. Well, speaking of this, this is my point. The influence of leadership. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises. A morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth. By clear, shining after, by clear shining after rain. And so God's leaders, their brilliant um, <clears throat> impact on others. And remember, the mouse doesn't know why the cheese is free. <laughs> okay. All right, that's it for that one tonight. So help me God. Verse 5. Although my house is not so with God... Yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? Again, it's quite profound. Although my house, we've covered this, we've referenced it in in earlier chapters, in last chapter also. David is admitting here that he has fallen short of God's calling. Anybody who serves the Lord understands that. And every child of God becomes conscious or more conscious and sensitive to their own inadequacies, which causes us to just depend more on God because you sort of get cornered. You're into ministry and now you you realize how inadequate you are and maybe you, you just need to just not do this anymore because you're not up to it. And God disagrees with that. And uh, uh, this was Peter. You know, Peter, when he first saw a miracle of the Lord catching all these fish, this is what happened, Luke chapter 5. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And the Lord's next response was, You stick with me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. You haven't seen anything yet. He doesn't say, no, Peter, come on. You're being too hard on yourself. 
uh, he doesn't disagree with Peter. He just, again, overrules and says, I can still work with you. And he does and did. And knows it's, uh, we love that he did. Imagine the New Testament. Imagine the Gospels without Peter. Uh, he opened up so much theology by just the questions he asked the Lord. Anyone, <clears throat> anyway, um, n- no one has ever sat on any throne anywhere and been perfect. That is reserved for Christ. And when we, well, we should get to it now. Isaiah, talking about his leadership. Isaiah 9, speaking of him, this is, you know, unto us a child is given. Um, but then he continues, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will perform this. Very beautiful section of scripture concerning the rule of Messiah. It continues here in verse 5. Yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered. Now this all started again when David wanted to build a house for the for the Lord and uh, Nathaniel said do it and then God told Nathaniel to correct that uh, decision and he did and then Nathaniel delivered this great covenant from the Lord to David it's recorded in 2 Samuel 7 and so David's sins and shortcomings did not mean that God was finished with him uh, even after the whole Bathsheba Uriah disaster God is faithful and he's already calculated and factored in into his equation of when he calls us to serve as engineers factor into various strengths and wind shear and things when they design a bridge. Uh, God has done this with his servants. First Corinthians 1, God is faithful. Oh man, how many times have I referred to that verse and those words when I feel that God is just not working fast enough? God is faithful. Rick, do you believe that? Yes, okay, then we can advance. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ the Lord. So he's, Paul is talking to the congregation. He's not saying this is for all of you who are serving and are in leaders. He's saying as a Christian, remember, God is faithful. And he has called you into fellowship with his son, knowing everything about you already. And David writes, in all things secure. To this David, this man David, the Lord always stayed his shepherd. It, it never stopped. It never got old. The flesh, of course, rebelled, and that's how he gets into trouble, just like the rest of us. But God, the Lord, was always his shepherd. Second Samuel 22, You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. I mean, how can you improve upon improve upon such verses like this? After, you know, this is a man that he just embraced God's forgiveness. He got to that point. Well, he sinned. He was disciplined. He was not the same man. But in time, he rebounds. He comes back just as strong as he was ever, as ever before. Maybe stronger because, you know, he's, the years have, have piled up on him. And he writes the, the psalm... Psalm we read last session in chapter 22 and this last psalm here he's still full of vigor for the Lord he says for this is all my salvation and all my desire 
Satisfaction in the faith. How do you get that and keep it? I mean, we have these flashes of satisfaction in the faith. But do we keep it? Well, I don't think we always do. I think, you know, sometimes some do better than others, of course. <clears throat> sometimes we, you know, get annoyed with our, our walk and the demands put on us. But yet we keep walking, and that's what Satan hates. And I think largely that's why God allows it uh, to prove and to strike back at the enemy. Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who would survive if God was petty uh, and said, Well, uh, I, I can't believe you thought that. That's it. You're going down. Uh, it continues in Psalm 130. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Now, again, that's not terror. That's a reverence. I mean, if you're terrified of God, you don't have a clue what grace is. Uh, grace is, uh, fears God, reverence, and is terrified of some things concerning God, but doesn't walk with him, you know, like you, you, you're walking next to a, a, a tiger or something that at any minute he may go off. What if he gets a hunger pain? <laughs> I'm in his vicinity. Uh, that's not God. The psalmist continues, I wait for Yahweh, my soul, waits, and in his word I do hope. Man, he just summed up the New Testament, did he not? If you mark iniquities, who could survive? And he, he talks about this profound forgiveness that God would be feared and honored. And he talks about waiting for Yahweh. His soul waits, and in the word of God he hopes. And then here again at the bottom of verse 5, will he not make it increase? Inadequate, but still useful to God is David's position. This is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? I'm inadequate, but God is, finds me useful. As Abigail was trying to tell David this a long time ago. But she did tell him, and he received it. And that's in 1 Samuel 25. Verse 6 now. But the sons of rebellion shall... All be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. Yeah, there's the problem, right? Uh, the sons of rebellion are like thorns and they need to be taken away, but it takes a long time to get to them, too long. God can't, what he's saying here, but the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. You can't touch them. I mean, if they stick you, they hurt you. God can't even get his hands on them to embrace them and to love them. They won't allow it unless they repent. He says, because they cannot be taken with hands, cannot be handled. You cannot touch the utter rebellious soul without getting hurt. They will turn on us. Some instrument has to be used, an instrument of force. God is saying, ultimately, uh, the most wicked ones, the violent ones, and they'll be cut down. Verse 7, But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. So evil must be dealt with by force and destroyed, and eventually that will happen, which is a theme throughout the Scripture. The prophet Nahum talks about this at length against Babylon. Uh, Nineveh, pardon me. Uh, Jonah brought them 
peace, and they abused it, and Nineveh brings down, uh, Nahum brings down the judgment. Verse 8, these are, are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Now, I'm not going to read some of these names. Uh, in fact, we're going to skip a lot of names tonight. You are, of course, there's no law to stop you from reading them. Um, but uh, we'll get right to the point. Verse 8 begins, uh, the mighty men of David, a review of these mighty men. It's kind of on the heels, when he closes the psalm in verse 7, about the force needed. Well, here's the force of mighty men, and armies exist to enforce the will of their leader. Uh, the, the, these exploits that are going to be mentioned in this section apparently took place mainly during the Philistine War with the Jews and that is covered in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel. First Chronicles also talks about this. It has a, a list that's nearly the same, but there are alterations and there are discrepancies. It's very difficult to line up, to, to reconcile the discrepancies. Most of them are doable. We just don't have enough information. When the writers of the Old Testament many times gave us inform, give us information, they, they omit many parts of the puzzle that may have been very familiar to them, but they're over the millennium, they're lost to us, and we have to account for that. I don't like when Bible commentators, and some of them are very quick, to say, obviously, a scribal error. I mean, they do that like a white flag. Throw, throw it out right away. It's like, come on, you can think a little harder. It's not necessarily a scribal error. There are other factors. These are moving parts. And uh, then other commentators, they are quite gallant. They, they start offering up, yeah, hey, here's some very sensible um, alternatives that are not a far reach at all. Well, Chronicles, when it starts these names of mighty men, it does it early in David's reign. And I told you this epilogue is out of sequence. The chronology is not true. Uh, I will add one other thing. The translators then come along and they wrestle with the Hebrew. For example, one of the names in this verse, uh, I'm tempted to try and I'm not going to, uh, <laughs> It's a proper name, according to some translators. But the Old King James, for example, it translates the name. Uh, that uh, is a man that sat in the seat, uh, which is what the name means. Whereas other translators come along and they say, no, that's a proper name and this is what his name was. And, and anyway, you spend a lot of time going in circles on this. Uh, no theology is lost by the apparent confusion and so I'm not going to stick on it. But I will go with First Chronicles 11. Now these were the heads of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom, with all Israel, to make him king according to the word of Yahweh concerning Israel. So these are the men that were with David from the days of Saul. Adino the Ezanite is the first one that is mentioned. And his that name, the got this name given to him. Evidently, he was a spearmaster. That's what that Adino, the Ezanite, means. Uh, he was just this great spearman. How great was he? Well, because he had killed 800 men at one time. Well, that's pretty impressive. 200 more. He could have tied the record. <laughs> but he, <laughs> that close. 
Uh, anyway, you know he slept well that night. Uh, anyhow, it um, okay. So in, in in back to First Chronicles in the parallel record, it says that it was three hundred men. And so those are the discrepancies, which is not that difficult because verse eighteen here. Uh, makes a distinction between somebody else that kills 300 men and wasn't as great as this guy, and so 800 is the number. But anyway, I don't want to open that up. It's just you'll be bored to no end, and I still won't. Uh, you, you won't probably be able to keep up. You get yourself a couple of Bible encyclopedias, a couple of Bible dictionaries, not one, but two of each, two by two, uh, some commentaries, and then you'll end up right back where I am. So, verse 9. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Doda. That's the proper pronunciation. It means beloved. The Ahoite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. So we finish with Adino. He killed 800 men, and there's really nothing else to say about that. It's sort of like, you know, if you win the Medal of Honor... You don't have to wear any other ribbon. You just can put that one on. You don't have to. Everybody else is like, wow, okay, that just says it all. Well, I think that the way it was with Adino. What else is, nobody can top that except Samson. So Eleazar comes along here in verse 9. And once upon a time, he was fighting alongside David. Again, this goes back to the Philistine Wars in chapter 5, most likely. And here he is, this defiant hero who stood and fought, even though the men of Israel were retreating. That's what it says. And the men of Israel had retreated. Well, not Eleazar. I'm not going anywhere. This is, you know, nice to read, but it's hard to pull off in life. When everyone else is afraid, what are you going to do? It's very easy to get afraid, become afraid with them. Verse 10, uh, he, Eleazar, arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. Yahweh brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. Well, the people come and get the goods looking at verse 10 from the bottom up. He does all the killing and they do all of the plundering. But what I like about this man, not only that, He's not going to leave. And Chronicles implies that David is there with him. So he's probably not alone. But the the historian zooms in on Eleazar because he's the one that's just hacking them away. And he arises to attack. He arose to attack. That's what it tells us. He arose and attacked the Philistines. Exhausted at some point, but still swinging. As reminds us of the charge in the book of Judges. They were exhausted, but still in pursuit. And he persevered. He prevailed because of this refusal to give in. Now, of course, we Christians, we see the word sword, and we immediately, in times like this, allegorize it, properly so. Metaphorically, the sword to us is the word of God because of what it does to lies, to Satan's work. It cuts it, it hacks it up. Ephesians 6, verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
So what we're seeing Eleazar do with his sword, we're supposed to imitate with Scripture. Scripture's supposed to be so attached to us that even when weary, we're still swinging it. We're not retreating from the position that God has put us in. But we are to use the Word of God to arise and to attack. And I would say this is the case, you know, if, imagine if you went off to college and you started hearing the gibberish, the indoctrination courses, you know. Well, the Bible is this, and, the Bible, and you stand up and say, ah, I ain't taking that from you or anybody else. In fact, I don't even like the way your hair is. Uh, you know, that's standing up and attacking. And, and there's nothing wrong to say little things like that if you mean it. Say, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to offend you, but I really don't like your hair. Uh, and this would, <laughs> throws them off balance a little bit. I know, because I used to do things like that. Anyway, it worry was very effective. Uh, anyway, you just can't do it to somebody who you think might actually hurt you. You just don't. You have to factor that in. Had the sword stuck to the hand of everybody else who was running, they would have been heroes. And so when the Bible sticks to our hand in the face of overwhelming odds, we become heroes. Uh, we know what happens when people drop the sword and run. Verse 11, And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Harite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. So again, the troops, these are troops, they're fleeing. And Shammah, like Eleazar, this is my bean field and you can't have it. He's the next one to stand. He's, now, these are the three of the mightiest men of David. Adino, uh, Eleazar, and Shammah. And Shammah, I don't know if it sounds like a shampoo or a superhero. I'm still undecided on that one. Anyway, in the prophecies of Ezekiel, the sons of Zadok, they stood out for spiritually standing their ground. And uh, you, you come across these verses, and, and they're supposed to, you know, strike us. I don't mean harm us, but they're supposed to uh, grab our attention. And we're supposed to say, yeah, I, I want that in my life. Ezekiel forty-eight eleven. It shall be for the priest of the sons of Zadok, who are sanctified, who have kept my charge, who did not go astray when the children of Israel went astray as the Levites went astray. Man, imagine that. You just got to be beaming, you know, with just, just God singling you out and saying, you stood your ground when everybody else ran. That's the guy I want to be in the story. So I could, I could imagine auditioning for a movie or a play on this, and, and they say, well, we'd like you to play one of the Levites that went astray. Nope, not going to do it. I'm either Zadok and his sons, or I'm not in the play. I can't even act like I'm going to run. I'm just, of course. Uh, remember what I said about the mouse, incidentally. <laughs> I don't want you to forget that, but I can't say it again yet. Uh, where are we? Verse uh, 12. But stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So Yahweh brought about a great victory. Well, sometimes we stand up with the word and we don't give an inch like Stephen did. <laughs> he got stoned. And the men carried Steve, devout men carried Stephen. Yeah, they carried the remains, but he was in heaven. 
Uh, so we still win. But here, well, in the, previ the previous hero, Eleazar, he attacked the enemy. Shammah defended against the enemy. So there we have offense and defense and hope that God's people would station themselves and not be quick to quit a clear cause of the Lord. And so just to review again, we have Adino, Eleazar, and Shammah. These were the three, three of the mightiest men of David's heroes. Now verse 13, Then three of the thirty chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam, and the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. Three, of, three out of the thirty, that's how the clause uh, opens. Then, where it says, then three of the thirty chief men, it is three out of the thirty. And it's, uh, these are the next class of heroes. Uh, the term thirty, does, it's not literal, but it came to denote an elite group of men known as David's mighty men. And they were about thirty. They were at least thirty. This list that we're going to get is thirty-seven. And the, the numbers change. I mean, for instance, Uriah, he died. The list wasn't stagnant. It was static in that sense. But here are these heroes. Most of the time in the military was not spent on the battlefield. They had their times on the battlefield. In contrast to Paul. Once Paul became a believer, all of his time, all of his Christian service was spent on the battlefield. I don't know that he ever relaxed. Uh, and uh, this is where we line up with these stories in the Bible. We say, well, we don't get to swing swords. And remember, when you go to swing your sword, you're making, you, that means you're vulnerable too. It's, you're in range if the enemy is in range. Um, unless you're the Bismarck and, <laughs> okay, that's another not, not all ships have the same range where I was going. Anyway, went down at harvest time. Well, that's a indicating it's a time stamp that the weather is dry and hot. And that sets us up for uh, David's request for water. And continuing in verse 13. And came to David at the cave of Adullam, about 12 miles south and west of Jerusalem one of David's favorite hiding places from Saul in the days of dodging Saul. You could say Saul, uh, David was a dodger. You know, the dodger started in Brooklyn and was dodging cars and they just stole the name out to, to wacky land. And that's some of the history behind the dodgers having that name. Uh, it's like the Lakers. What lakes are in California? The, the Minnesota, anyway. Uh, sorry. No, I'm not sorry. I'm not. <laughs> where are we here we are then the, then the verse 13 at the bottom and the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim uh, that goes back again chapter 5 early in his reign we read in chapter 5 verse 17 now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel all the Philistines went up and searched for David and David heard of it and went down to the stronghold and then verse 25 of chapter 5 and David did so as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines. And, and what, so what we're reading, these exploits of these mighty men were taking place in those days, early before the northern kingdom uh, joined 
to David. Verse 14, David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was in Bethlehem. Verse 15, and David said with longing, oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Well, this longing couldn't be ignored. I mean, David just said, man, I just would love a drink from the well of Bethlehem. I grew up in Bethlehem. And the water there to me is the sweetest of them all. Uh, And his men hear this. And they don't shrug it off as just a comment. They're going to risk their lives to get him a drink of water. Verse 16. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. Uh, I made him, actually, I mentioned that these, uh, the 330 from verse 13, then three of the 30, these are the same three men. And I might have said that, that it wasn't. I got, I got ahead of myself if I did that. Sometimes even my errors are correct, though, so I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, uh, these are the three mighty men that heard David say that. And so they break through to the camp of the Philistines, and they steal water. Now, after they leave, the Philistines have got to be saying to themselves, what just happened here? I mean, these guys just come in and steal some water, and they leave. Uh, It's almost comical, not for the Philistines. But here they are, these men, breaking through an enemy-held position to satisfy the longing of their king, their beloved king. Says a lot about, all four of them, says a lot about the three mighty men and then David. Um, who you say, well, who do these men think they are? Well, really the question is, who do these men think David is? Uh, well, he's, he's God's anointed. I think if you took that out of the, if David was just a king that, uh, you know, managed to take the throne from Saul, I don't know that this devotion would have been there. I think they connected his uh, charisma and his bravery with his anointing. And they thought it was worth it. David, of course, knew better. Uh, It's quite a remarkable passage of Scripture telling us of an event that happened long ago, but it really happened. At any cost, they were going to get their king a drink of that water. Men of such heroic caliber. These kind of men were drawn to David. Nowadays, you've got to have some... Uh, well, I mean, you still have to have something to draw men of caliber. But some many times, when I say nowadays, I don't want to make it sound like today is the first time that this has happened. And throughout history, uh, bad men have lined up with bad men. But it is still possible to have good men, men of heroic caliber, servants of heroic caliber, men or women, line up with other uh, heroic characters in the faith, and we, we see that we'll see that in the book of Acts. We see that in the ministry of of Paul. Paul has so many people that he that were just lined up with him. Anyway, verse seventeen, and he said, "Far be it from me, O Yahweh, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it." These things were done by the three mighty men. Well, if it were Saul, Saul would have said, I'd like another. 
uh, he would say, yeah, go get me another one. And a, don't forget a straw. The, David could not bring himself to satisfy a craving at the expense of another's peril. And that's what comes out. He knew he wasn't worthy of such a great risk, even though it was all motivated by love. Deuteronomy 12, 23. God says, only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. And David is, you know, he says, this is, this, this is the blood of these men. In that sense of sacrifice and uh, life and death. And so he, he wouldn't do it. He pours it out on, uh, and, and unto the Lord. Quite profound. And they were, it was an honor. They weren't like, what? You know what we went through to get you that water? Uh, they, they understood. Verse 18. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of another three. He lifted up, he lifted his spear against three hundred men, killed them, and won a name among these three. So now this is the Abishai that we've been reading about that is always close to David, that takes no nonsense, the brother of Joab, as stated. And for some unknown reason, we are told that there are three more of these heroes. Uh, Eleazar, Dino, and Shammah, and then we have Abishai and Benaniah, but there's no third one named. And, and that's what I meant. You know, the, the writers, uh, I don't know, what happened? That verse got lost. Somebody skipped it. I don't know, but there's no third man mentioned. Uh, and so we'll continue with this. But verse 19 was he not the most honored of the three, this next group of three? Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first. So Abishai was this hero that killed 300 men that is recorded here, confirmed kills. I we do that with our fighter pilots. You know, to be an ace, you got to shoot down so many other guys. Uh, it's interesting, Joab's not listed in the mighty man, incidentally. He's mentioned. He was one of the mighty men, which would have bumped the number up, 38 in this list. But I don't know that I would have made the comment that he really wasn't as good as the other three if he was still alive. <laughs> so he probably waited until Abishai was dead or just couldn't swing a sword anymore before he makes his little snarky comment. <laughs> you know, he was good, but, you know, he just was, he was no Adino. Yeah, verse, we do that with baseball players. not good to do that with people who can kill other people. Uh, verse 19 was he not the most honored of the three therefore he became their captain however he did not attain verse 20 Benaniah was the son of Jehoiada the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel who had done many deeds he had killed two lion like heroes of Moab he also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. Who are these people? I mean, this guy kills 800. This guy steals water. Uh, I mean, this guy kills lions and people like lions on snowy days. Nice touch, right? Uh, about the snowy day slaying. Verse 21. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. <laughs> That's what it says. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Well, neither heroes nor lions nor spectacular Egyptians with giant spears could stop Benaniah. He is my favorite because he, he shows up later and I, I just like him. Uh, 
the whole snowy day did it for me. No. Anyway, we read about this in First Chronicles chapter 11, the parallel account. It says, and he killed an Egyptian, a man of great height, five cubits tall. In, in the Egyptian's hand, there was a spear like a weaver's beam, and he went down to him with a staff, as we know. And he, at some point, he had to drop the staff and take the guy's spear. So he's about seven and a half feet tall. That's what Chronicles gives us a little detail that Samuel does not. How humiliating to have a guy come down and take your spear from you, then kill you with you. The humi- That's why he killed him. I don't want you to go through life humiliated, so I'm going to kill you. Verse 20, yeah, we, we laugh, but this is serious stuff. Verse 22, these things Ben and I, the son of Jehoiada, did and won a name among three mighty men. Um, I tell you, the first three must have really been impressive because that's pretty impressive. The whole killing of the lion thing. And the activists, of course, they sent him also to hate mail for months. Verse 23, he was more honored than the 30, but did not attain to the first three, and David appointed him over his guard. Well, Benaniah evidently was not only able, not only known for his heroism on the battlefield and in one-on-one encounters, but he had the instincts for the palace life, too. He was able to um, endure a palace life, and he became the captain over the palace guard. And we'll see him in action in, in early on in Kings. Verse 24, Ashael, the brother of Joab, was one of 30. Uh, then we have Elnathan and, uh, well, Elanon, the son of Doda of Bethlehem. So this list had to be early because Ashael died before. Uh, remember, Abner poked him in the belly with the blunt end of his spear, of uh, the handle part, and it went right through him and killed him. And then, of course, Joab killed Abner later. Anyway, this happened before the kingdom was consolidated. So again, the epilogue is not interested in chronology. It's just going back, giving us details. Now we go down to verse 23. If there's anyone who would like to stand and read verses 25 through 32. Uh, anyway, the first one in verse 33, the only one we're coming on is Shammah, the Hararite. Likely the same guy as verse 11. Verse 34, there's Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, that is, Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. And uh, so Eliam is her father, and yet he's one of the mighty men. Verse 37, um, <clears throat> there we have Zelek. Here's another good name for a kid. Uh, Zelek, get to bed. Zelek, where are you? Anyway, Zelek, <laughs> what? You can't envision these things? Zelek the Ammonite, and Naharai the Berethite, armor bearer of Joab, the son of Zariah. So some of David's heroes were not Israelites, as Ittai from Gath. Uh, and he was a mighty man also, not listed here. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, David won admiration and loyalty from all over. Verse 39, and Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Well, of course, Uriah, this was, this list is given before David killed him or had him killed. It's an asterisk from our perspective. Um, these men did not earn uh, their distinction or their honor 
by staying out of the fight. And that's the lesson for us. You read about the mighty men on the battlefield. You say, well, Christianity is a battlefield. Well, can I have an opportunity to be one of the Lord's uh, servants as, as these men were? They got involved. And so I close with this verse from 2 Timothy, speaking of vessels of honor. Paul says, a vessel for honor. He says, be this, a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Okay, now, this church enjoys a lot of useful servants that are vessels of honor. And here's the thing, I know you know this, Satan's not happy with that. Don't think that once you're in, you're in. It's a lock. Uh, he's going to attack. Just be ready for him. And uh, throughout life, it goes for me, for you, for all of us. If you are a vessel of honor, set aside and useful to the master, prepared for every good work, well, you also better be prepared for battle too. Sword in one hand, trial in the other. That's the way it is. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you um, t- listing these exploits for us, for recording and preserving the final psalm of David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. May we be edified by these things. May you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name.